right, so good morning, and we are back, ready to start panel two. I am Jen Mascott, professor at Scalia Law School and co-executive director of the Seaboyne Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And we are so thrilled to be co-hosting this event today with the Heritage Foundation, who's been so gracious to give the facilities, the planning. John Malcolm is just a master of um, collecting people to talk about what's a really wonderful, important topic today, which is 30 years of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence and his influence on moving forward. I'm also a former clerk to Justice Thomas, and I will be resuming a role as his co-professor when he returns to Scalia Law School in the spring. Our second panel this morning is on the justices' role in constitutional liberties, First Amendment, religion, race, and natural law. It's a good pan excellent panel, going to be moderated by Adam Mortara, who I will introduce briefly, and then he will introduce his panelists. So Adam is also a former law clerk to Justice Thomas, and he clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Adam currently is a civil and voting rights trial attorney. He previously served for many years as a partner at Bartlett Beck. Um, he has been appointed two times to argue cases in the Supreme Court and also been appointed to argue in the 11th Circuit, 5th Circuit, and 2nd Circuit, along with a lot of other extensive work as a trial and appellate advocate. Um, he graduated from the University of Chicago undergrad and law school. And my favorite anecdote about Adam, I just learned this morning reviewing his biography, is that between that undergrad and law degree, he snuck in a master's degree in astrophysics in Cambridge. So he is <laughs> undoubtedly our smartest participant today. Sorry to all the rest of you, also very, very, very smart panelists that we have. And he's going to lead us off in a wonderful discussion. Thank you all so much. Thank you very much, Jen, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be back here at Heritage. Uh, John stole the nice things to say about heritage, so I'll just say the last time that I was here, was a very long time ago, was actually for a lunch that featured Justice Thomas as an attendee, which will this will date me and Jim and Allison. It was the goodbye lunch for Jim and Allison Ho leaving D.C. You might not even know that they ever were here. Judge Jim Ho at one point lived here. Um, my fellow panelists here are uh, Judge Allison Rushing of the Fourth Circuit. They really need no introduction. She's a judge. Uh, Professor Nicole Garnett of Notre Dame, also a former CT clerk, along with Judge Rushing. And then the only non-CT uh, clerk on our panel, <laughs> pro Professor and former Judge Michael McConnell. And down at the end, uh, my brother, uh, Albert Lynn, partner at Hunton, Andrews, Kurth, and most importantly, the former Solicitor General of the great state of West Virginia, featured so prominently in today's discourse because of their excellent and very, very, very wise senator. <laughs> <laughs> so rather than, I'm sure that we'll intersperse some anecdotes about uh, Justice Thomas as we kind of go through the day, and then maybe we'll be asked a question by the press that has nothing to do with the panel discussion uh, at, at, at the end when we have time for audience questions. Uh, but I want to start off with where we're, the topics we're talking about, which are loosely thinking, except for maybe natural law, the list of things you're not supposed to discuss at Thanksgiving. So it's you know, race, religion, and then I guess you're not supposed to exercise your total rights to free speech at Thanksgiving. I, I never follow any of these rules, so I'm not going to follow them now. <laughs> Professor McConnell, I want to start off with, with race uh, because we can't be on a panel with Professor McConnell without noting that he is widely acknowledged uh, as the foremost originalist defender of Brown against Board of Education. But uh, Justice Thomas, who's probably the foremost proponent of a, a 
pure colorblind vision of the Constitution, and he said so many, many times, has not yet made, nor did Justice Scalia make, the originalist case for that view of the Constitution. And I wanted to ask you why you thought that hasn't happened yet. Well, first, it's customary on these occasions to say how happy we are to be invited to speak. And that's always true, but especially here today, because it means I don't have to be wearing a mask when I'm up at the dais. and uh, I, I also, as people have been reminiscing, I couldn't, I can't resist reminiscing. The first time I came to Heritage was while I was law clerking for Justice Brennan, and he gave me special permission to sneak over and hear William Bentley Ball talk about strategies for litigating against abortion. So some things never change. Right. Uh, uh, but you're asking about um, about race questions, and it really is quite interesting. It's quite striking uh, how originalism has not uh, played much of a role in the race cases, including, of course, uh, Brown versus Board, where uh, the court asked for re-argument on the question of the uh, legislative history of the 14th Amendment on the question, and then concluded uh, that it didn't have anything to say, something which I think is just, you know, pay, they just didn't look uh, in the right place, uh, but also in the more recent cases and, and including uh, Justice uh, Thomas. And if you look at the amicus briefs in the affirmative action cases in uh, the last uh, decade or so, you see usually two or three uh, fairly serious amicus briefs in support of affirmative action uh, by various uh, parties, and I don't think there has been a serious originalist brief uh, uh, against uh, affirmative action. And then, the, so the, the uh, conservatives have all been consequentialists, and the progressives have, well, mostly been consequentialists too. But at least there's been an originalist contingent among uh, uh, among the progressives, and this is a puzzle. Well, uh-huh. do you think it's because the, the the academy, which is responsible for unearthing all of this history, as you've done so powerfully in connection with Brown, hasn't done its job? Yeah, I do. I really do think that's the answer, that uh, 14th Amendment or Reconstruction originalism has been slow to take off, but it is roaring today in the academy. Uh, I, I think mostly so far with respect to some other aspects of the 14th Amendment, but there is a great deal there. Take, again, affirmative action. It is a complicated story, but it is, it is not that there was that there's no history bearing on it. It's that there is so much history bearing on it in many complicated ways, uh, especially having to do with the adoption of the Freedmen's Bureau Act, uh, an act which was directed at providing special benefits to the newly freed former slaves of the South. Uh, and when, just to give a quick, very quick summary of this, uh, when the legislation was first uh, uh, proposed by the Capital R Republicans, the Democrats objected partly on the ground that this was class legislation, meaning discriminatory, because it was directing benefits solely at uh, one racially defined uh, class. Well, the Republicans sort of divided about how to respond, but the actual response was to amend the bill and include 
uh, loyal refugees, meaning uh, opponents of secession in the South who are also you know, driven from their homes and brutalized by the uh, by the system. Include them in the system of the uh, of benefits, and so uh, you can see that the um, that the opposition to racially based uh, uh, benefits was it was there at the beginning, but it was you know, but it's not quite so straightforward as you know the Constitution is colorblind. In fact. Uh, you know, from the other side, the the uh, Congress actually had before it and rejected a straightforward colorblindness uh, uh, amendment draft of the amendment. So we'll, we'll, I think we'll come back a little bit to the colorblind concept when we when we talk about natural law a little bit later. But uh, Nicole, Professor McConnell mentioned uh, a little bit this kind of consequentialist strain, and and I've noticed uh, in some of the justices' opinions, I think. This this consequential strain, the the one that jumps out to me, um, and I'm not saying it's for the same reason every single time. The one that jumps out to me is the Frederick Douglass quote at the beginning of the the Grutter opinion, but there are others. What what do you think the justice is doing when he does this? Maybe it's not always the same thing, and I mean obviously it's a contrast to to Justice Scalia who did that somewhat less. What's going on there? Okay, first a plug for Notre Dame. Um, next week we're doing a conference on the the um, <laughs> the ratification of the uh, the ratification of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments. And there's a really new, an important new book um, of documents being published by Kurt Lash, the University of Chicago Press, which I encourage you to take a look at. It's it's really it is an exciting time to do originalism about the that moment, um, the Reconstruction moment. Um, so consequentialism, I think it's important to, to point out that there is a distinction between consequentialism and consequences. Um, and, and when Justice Thomas quotes Frederick Douglass, he does quote Frederick Douglass and Grutter. He says, you know, the quote, the famous quote, leave us alone. Um, and then he he also quotes Frederick Douglass in one of my favorite opinions of Justice Thomas's, which is his concurrence in the voucher case in Zellman, where he says education means um, uh, it, it means freedom, it means light and liberty. Um, and I think he he uh, he also talks about consequences. Um, other examples I can think of um, he in the the McDonald case, which is the Second Amendment incorporation case, he talks about really what would mean to disarm poor black people at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment and now. He talks about uh, consequences in the Morales versus Chicago, which is the gang loitering case where he says, I mean, I think kind of powerfully, he says the, the the court can safely say that this is unconstitutional because the members of this court do not live in the neighborhoods where people who are going to suffer from our lofty pronouncements live. Um, and I think those are all, I think in some sense you could call that those highlighting of consequences almost like shaming, um, but not that those consequences are driving his decisions. He is telling, and he does have occasionally, he never had, he's never had Justice Scalia's sharp tongue. He never said anybody should put a bag over their head or any of that. But he will say in these cases, interesting cases, particularly race cases, but also cases about average ordinary Americans who will suffer from mistakes that he believes the court has made. He is not afraid to say, look, y'all don't live in our, those na the neighborhoods where these people are going to suffer at the hands of the gangs. And these, it's not that that's why we should come out the other way, but we came out the wrong way 
and we are going to hurt poor people and we're going to hurt minorities because of our bad decisions. I think that's consequences. And I think it's okay. I don't think it's consequentialism. Um, I think when Judge Jones mentioned sort of his unique voice, his unique role, his story, um, his unique, honestly, black voice, it's okay uh, to, to say to your colleagues on the court and the world, this is a mistake. And this mistake will have terrible consequences for the people that don't have the same amount of privilege that we do. And I think that's the consequences argument, not consequentialism. And I think maybe what I'm getting at when I say, I think maybe consequentialism is the wrong word. Maybe it's context. It's providing, you know, sort of context for, for the decision and the way that you just described it, that's kind of maybe a better way to think about it. But, you know, one of the ones that I, that, that constantly comes to mind to me as well is, is his opinion in Brumfield, uh, versus Kane, which is about the murder of Work Dunn's mother. And there's a portion of the opinion that was not joined by any other justice where he compares and contrasts the the the, the murderer uh, with Work Dunn, who faced with difficult life circumstances, both Work Dunn makes a giant success of himself in college and pro football. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Is that just shaming? Well, it is. I mean, it is shaming. I mean, so I, I, I think, look, he I think um, I haven't read that opinion in a while, but I think um, he is, again, pointing out the consequences that I think in that particular case, if I remember right, there is sort of a, a suggestion that perhaps the defendant who um, the defendant um, was in some sense disadvantaged or harmed in some way by the system. And he is saying, let's talk about the consequences of this particular line of reasoning and how it will affect ordinary poor people who are the victims in these cases. Um, does that opinion go too far? You know, I don't know. But I, don't, I think it is of a piece of the kind of thing that I'm saying. It's not just about work done. I think some people have said, like, we didn't need the extended autobiography of work done. But it, it is of a piece of the Morales point of the Frederick Douglass quotes like that. Look, we are making constitutional errors and those constitutional errors have consequences. I'm not saying that this guy should get executed because of the con because I'm being consequentialist. I'm saying that we are making errors that are harming real people and we need to stop. We need to stop. Um, Making those errors, we need to return to the proper understanding of the Constitution. And I think that it's really important, this is the last thing I'll say, it's really important to make a distinction between what Justice Thomas is doing when he's talking about consequences and the call for a consequentialist constitutional law on the left and the right. They're not the same thing. Um, it's a good to acknowledge that our decisions have consequences. It's bad to say that we should decide what the law is based on what those consequences are. So, Albert, I, I, maybe I misinterpreted your glance over at me, but I thought maybe you had something to say here. Well, uh, I mean, I'll just add one really brief thing, which is I think the justice has always, and he teaches a class with, and I now forget because he teaches classes with lots of former clerks, but he does teach a class where he goes, uh, talks about some famous cases and, and digs into the facts, right, behind them. Greg Max, he's sitting right in oh, front Greg. of me. Oh, Greg, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and, and I think he's always shown an interest, both as a personal matter, but also as a jurist, in the fact that cases involve real people, right? Uh, that they're not just about, um, they're not just about the law and the principles that they're deciding. Now, again, I mean, I think, you know, he would be the first to say, you know, make Nicole's point, which is that doesn't that doesn't drive the outcome. But there's nothing 
there's not only nothing wrong with, but I think there's something right about recognizing that, um, you know, whatever the outcome of the case is as a legal matter is going to affect the, the actual people who are involved in the case. So, you know, Albert, shifting to your assigned role on the panel, which is to discuss the First Amendment, uh, could you just orient us a little bit to the justice's major milestones in the speech area? I mean, and there's a lot, but if you could give us a few to touch off on. Sure, I will. Uh, and I want to also thank uh, everyone for having me here. I'm clearly the least qualified on this panel. I thought maybe I was more qualified than Adam, but it turns out he's a literal rocket scientist. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, there's a ton to cover in the free speech space, and so, but I'll try to kind of, I've got sort of six real quick categories to go through. I mean, I think if I were to characterize his speech jurisprudence, um, uh, I'd say that he's, you know, he's a free speech hawk um, with perhaps some idiosyncrasies. He's in some ways sort of an absolutist, right? If it's speech, it's protected, um, but not everything is speech. And that'll get into some, you know, not everything is protected speech. Um, and, you know, his, his cases on kids' speech are, I think, are particularly relevant to that point. So, um, you know, I think there, there's two cases for me that I think really stand out as sort of illustrating this principle um, of him being, you know, a free speech hawk. Reed versus Town of Gilbert, which is the signs case where he says, you know, that content-based discrimination, discrimination based on, uh, on the basis of content is content-based discrimination, and therefore it is subject to strict scrutiny. Um, and for anyone who, who practices in the free speech space, I mean, Reed is, you know, whether it is actually a major doctrinal change or not, is certainly being interpreted and treated by lower courts as a huge, uh, potentially huge doctrinal change in the sense that it says, like, look, if you have to look at the content to decide what something is, whether the law applies, then it's subject to strict scrutiny. And of course, the court has a lot of, um, you know, little tiny, you know, offshoots uh, for First Amendment, but Reed is very sweeping in its language. Um, you know, the other very recent case that he wrote is another majority opinion of his is the NIFLA case, which is the compelled disclosures for pregnancy centers. And again, I think that's a really good example of sort of how he applies his his um, First Amendment principles. Uh, and there he, you know, sort of sweeps away this idea that had been percolating in the lower courts that sort of speech that, you know, of professionals is somehow specially protected. Um, and, you know, a, a strain, I think, that runs through his speech jurisprudence is the idea that, again, like, if it's protected speech, we shouldn't be having a lot of these sort of separate exceptions, right? That like, oh, well, if it's this, then maybe we treat it slightly differently. Um, you know, if it's a disclosure versus a, um, you know, um, a required disclosure versus something that is um, a prohibition on speech and it's treated differently. He's been very clear that, look, if it's protected speech, it's, it's protected. So those are, I think, the two kind of, for me, exemplars. And then, but let me, you know, mention a couple of his, I think, maybe what one might consider idiosyncratic rulings. I mentioned the speech rights of children. Um, the bong hits for Jesus case, Morse. Uh, the violent video games case out of California, Entertainment Merchants. And then the most recent one, he was the sole dissenter in the cheerleader uh, speech case. And all of those, he is sort of, you know, he goes back to the beginning. This is an application of originalism. And he says, you know, look, like the founders did not understand, you know, kids to have sort of the same speech uh, rights as adults. Uh, and certainly in the school context where, you know, you have the doctrine of in loco parentis. Um, uh, another uh, sort of interesting area um, 
campaign finance and anonymous speech, which I know some, someone else will get into. Um, he recently, uh, in a, a concurrence in United States versus Sinning Smith, which was really not at all about free speech, because uh, it was about the principle of party presentation, which he also really cares about. Um, he wrote a concurrence questioning the whole concept of the overbreath doctrine, you know, where you can just kind of come in and say, well, it, you know, it may not really be unconstitutionalized to me, but it sweeps so broadly. There are all these other hypothetical third parties who might be affected that we should strike this down facially. And, and I'll come back to that. I think there's an interesting observation there about how he really, really, really doesn't like, you know, rules that allow judges to just insert policy judgments, right, and do things on an ad hoc basis. Um, the, um, there's obviously a huge uh, one is commercial speech. Um, he does not think that there should be really a doctrine of commercial speech, and I think this gets to his idea of, you know, if it's protected speech, then it should kind of fall under the same bucket. Um, and 44 Liquor Mart uh, is sort of his leading case on that, where he, you know, questions the idea of the central Hudson test and that it should be subjected to intermediate scrutiny. And then let me just sort of finish with um, uh, some of these other things where he's sort of recently questioned things. Uh, if you've been following, so for those of you who know defamation law, there's a, a huge case out there in New York Times versus Sullivan that says that, you know, people who are public figures um, are subject to a higher standard to prove defamation. And the justice has written twice in the last uh, two years questioning whether that has an originalist basis, if you really go back to the beginning. Um, and then, uh, and then of course, he, he, he recently wrote um, a separate opinion in the case where they dismissed the, the sort of Twitter challenge uh, involving President Trump because it was moot, um, where he sort of questions, you know, how you might analyze uh, Twitter uh, in the First Amendment context. Um, and then I guess the last thing that I do want to throw out there, because this, this picks up a little bit on this consequences versus consequentialism, um, is Virginia versus Black. So Virginia versus Black, for those who don't know, is the cross-burning case. Uh, there was a Virginia regulation that prohibited cross-burning, uh, criminalized cross-burning with an intent to intimidate, but it included a presumption that cross-burning can be presumed to be have an intent to intimidate. And the justice uh, dissented um, from the idea that that presumption is unconstitutional. Um, and it's a it's a really interesting case because you sort of have to ask yourself, right? And when you read it, you'll see like how much of his own personal background, um, you know, was percolating through his mind as he decided that case. And it's also an interesting case because I think it's, it's really relevant today in terms of the distinction between hate speech, which is protected because it, it, uh, only conveys a, a message versus a true threat, uh, which is not protected. And I think the line between the justice's opinion and the majority there is an interesting one to explore in, in, in today's age of sort of, you know, words hurt me and people should be canceled. So, so, so many things to, to jump off on there. Uh, I, I was in the earlier panel, we, there was a little bit of a discussion of 
you know, Justice Thomas today versus Justice Thomas, say, 20 or 30 years ago and how things have changed. And then at the same time, using moderator's privilege, I, I asked Judge Rushing to kind of do the, I don't know if you everybody remembers the NFL films music, you know, the dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, it's kind of do the thing where Justice Thomas wins. You know, <laughs> talk about all the things. And then he was there at the 40-yard line. And, and, and so Judge Rushing is going to go through some of the big wins. But when we think about Justice Thomas's big wins, we often conceptualize him as having been right all along from the beginning, and they're not being a change. So before we get to the, the NFL films with Judge Rushing, I wanted to ask, and, and this is maybe a little hobby horse of mine for all of you, maybe Nicole or, or, or Professor McConnell, um, is there a shift between 44 Liquor Mart and this thing about big tech? Because when you 44 Liquor Mart, and I know, Professor McConnell, you're a little bit of a dissenter from the idea that he perfectly equates commercial speech with, um, with uh, personal speech. But that seems to be a very pro-corporate decision. And now, yeah, we are, here we are seeing maybe the corporations don't all have the freedom that they would have had in the 44 Liquor Mart world. It's not exactly the same. It's not speech. What do you think? So as a, I teach property, um, and so I read the, um, the, the Twitter, you know, missive. Uh, in case you don't know, like last, last year, Justice Thomas has, since the beginning, had a practice of saying, in an appropriate case, I would reconsider all of American law. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would reconsider Calder versus Bull, and that maybe paper money is unconstitutional. If it ever comes up, you know... I will write a long an opinion about paper money even longer than the than the dissent in the um, term limits case. Um, but so he has he does this a lot in um, in dissents from denial and cert and opinions respecting the denial of cert, which I have come to understand from um, my judge friends are now called dissentals, which was something that didn't exist when I was a law clerk. But I never heard this dissental thing. But um, if you really want to get a sense about what the man's thinking about, it's really fun just to go through a term and read everything that he's said. I should reconsider the takings clause. So he had this little dissental in um, the case about Trump getting kicked off Twitter, and he said it was moot. He agreed it was moot, but he said, well, maybe these big social media conglomerates could are public accommodations or common carriers. Now, as a property law person, I probably read that a little bit differently than as a speech case. So they are... They're platforms for speech, but the question about when you teach uh, public accommodation and common carrier law and property, which I do, it was always um, it was a traditional exception um, to uh, the right to exclude. So the idea of a common carrier was you had to accept all comers for a purpose. I mean, if you're the telegraph company, you couldn't decide that you don't like. Jim Ho's opinions, and so therefore he couldn't send a telegraph. A lot of people don't like Jim Ho's opinions, <laughs> but but none of them are here. <laughs> so, uh, and the telegraph company, because he was a common carrier, could it, it basically the regulation, common carrier regulations, allowed um, it were basically a way of prevent of limiting the telegraph company's right to exclude Jim Ho from sending a telegraph or. The, the, the inn couldn't exclude the traveler 
um, because they didn't like the traveler. I actually have no idea what the details of those regulations were, although I pretend to once a year in property. Um, but I do think if you think about his like question about common carrying and public accommodation, I think the better way to think of it is rather than regulating speech, it's re- whether or not the government can limit Twitter or Facebook's right to exclude because it's serving the telegraph company's purpose or the stagecoach company's purpose, the train's purpose, which is getting people or messages from A to B. I have no opinion on that because I really haven't done the work to know what that would look like. But that's how I think about those cases, not like their intention with the commercial speech cases. Because he's not thinking about it as Twitter as the speaker. He's thinking of the Twitter as the carrier of messages. And can Twitter decide it doesn't like message A or messenger A and therefore, you know, say the president of the United States don't like that person, exclude or, you know, vaccine misinformation. Can they just decide not to whatever that is? Um I mean, I am vaccinated, but so, but it does, just not everybody, you know, but I mean, whatever that is, can they just decide they don't like the misinformers of vaccine whatevers and, and exclude it? Um, that seems to me to be what's going on. But Michael might disagree because he's well, smarter than me. Well, I'm vaccinated too, by the way. Um, I, I noticed you sort of moving away. And, uh, I... The, the the problem, I think, with the, with treating these platforms as common carriers, let's assume you can do it, okay? But this it would not be an all-comers regime because nobody thinks that these companies ought to, you know, uh, allow everything to be said. No, nobody, everybody's happy when they cut the spam out, right? Eighty percent, I think, of the of the removals or spam and and there are all kinds of things that they're just it it was okay from the beginning wasn't it that facebook had a policy against adult nudity it's what makes facebook different from one of the things that makes it a an agreeable family oriented um thing but that would be you know blatantly unconstitutional if it were a, a government uh rule there's going to be and the community standards for these companies are just they're enormously complicated with all kinds of you can do this, you can't do that, and so forth. And so if they are treated as common carriers, the, effectively the government embraces each and every one of those things. And the First Amendment kicks in. I think it makes I, – I, I don't just don't understand how it is going to work. I mean, just to give a qu- quick example of this from, from you know, the Brown versus Board of Education, that the argument for why uh, uh, common carriers like stagecoaches and railroads uh, could be uh, could be subjected to uh, desegregation law in the in the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was precisely because there was all these were these were common law common carriers and that uh, if the government allowed them to exclude a person on the basis of race, that was government action because only reasonable restrictions would be permitted. And so essentially you get to litigate everything under the Constitution that you would otherwise have litigated under the common law. I don't see how that's going to work for the social media companies. One comment from Nicole before we get to the highlight I think it's really important when we're talking about this because this is a panel, we're talking about Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas does had, did not say that Twitter was a common carrier, and he a lot of his little dissentals 
you know, he, he actually said in a different one this year, he said about regulatory takings, if there is such a thing as regulatory takings, we should say what they are. And if not, we should say that there isn't. But he didn't say that there weren't regulatory takings. I think a lot of these things are just like, I haven't thought that. I, I, I need to, I think this is an important question that we should explore as an original matter. We haven't done it. There's a, so it's, you know, in the in appropriate cases, he would say, it's time to think about it. I think Gamble is a great example because I think Justice Thomas thought that that the dual sovereignty thing was probably constitutionally problematic. And he says, well, I guess I was wrong, or at least I'm not so sure that I'm wrong that I actually am going to go this far. And I think that is one of the things that's super interesting about him is that he raises these questions and he's willing to say, okay, I thought about it. I guess I was wrong. Um, and and so just the fact that he said it doesn't mean we're going down the road that Michael just... And it's a as to Elbert's point about party presentation, it's a it's a request for briefing, right? When a when a judge issues a, uh, I had not heard this word, but I love it, dissentals. <laughs> um, when a judge issues something like that and says, in an appropriate case, we might reconsider X Y Z, they're asking for the parties to start briefing that issue, um, so that the justices can um, can actually reconsider it as an well and decide. And not just the parties, right? I mean, we talked earlier about sort of academia, academia doing the work. Right. I mean. Um, uh, you know, I think in some ways it's a prompt, especially when you're talking about originalism. I mean, the Supreme Court clerks and the justices don't have the time and probably shouldn't be, you know, just doing it cold themselves. Uh, and so you mean, because it does, to do it right, it does require a lot of digging, a lot of work. And so it's a prompt to parties, to academia, to lower courts, looking at you, Jim Ho, um, you know, to, to uh, start doing the work as well. And, and can I just say, I don't think that Clarence Thomas's views on commercial speech in here actually have anything to do with being pro-corporate. Um, 44 Liquor Mart is, 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 I think, an excellent opinion. And I don't read him as saying that, there's no spe- that there are no circumstances in which commercial speech is is subject to, to uh, content-based re- regulation. What he is saying is that the government cannot un, un, cannot regu- cannot use corporate speech commercial excuse me commercial speech regulations as a way of regulating primary conduct by individuals. So this was a case in which the underlying purpose of the rule was to try to discourage people from drinking too much. Right. It, it's about using commercial speech to regulate primary behavior. He, I don't see anything in his jurisprudence that's against regulating, say, false or misleading uh, ads, which, I mean, in, which that wouldn't be permitted for politics, uh, but it's permitted for uh, for commercial speech. He he doesn't disagree that commercial speech is important, is different in important ways. Uh, but using the regulation of the companies as a backdoor way of of regulating people, uh, he thinks should not be allowed. So um, one thing that I have in common with Justice Thomas is that we're both fans of the Dallas Cowboys, and that means that as a young man, I had to suffer through the Troy Aikman's rookie season. We went one and fifteen, but we beat the Redskins on Sunday night. Um, let's do the highlight reel because <laughs> eventually <laughs> the Cowboys won a bunch of Super Bowls. <laughs> So the, Justice Thomas does have a number of wins over his uh, 30-year career of bringing up issues first by himself and then um, 
persuading his colleagues to come along. A number of those wins are not in uh, the topics that we are talking about today. So um, there's uh, sentencing and increasing mandatory minimums. There's, as uh, Judge Pryor pointed out, the confrontation clause. There are a number of wins outside of this area. Um, when we get to talking about religion, there are going to be very few wins for Justice Thomas, especially when it comes to establishment clause. But on speech, um, I can think of two primary situations where um, the justice first espoused an opinion um, by himself and uh, raised it for a while, and then the rest of the court came along. Uh, one of those is anonymous speech, um, an anonymous assembly. Um, since 1995, so very early in his tenure, um, the justice in separate opinions has reasoned that the text and the history of the First Amendment indicate that it protects the right to speak and assemble anonymously. Um, that was in McIntyre, a case about anonymous leafleting. Um, and then he continued that strain in um, campaign finance cases in McConnell um, about forced disclosure of donor identities. Um, and then reiterated that again in Citizens United. In Citizens United, uh, uh, he added examples um, from, uh, you know, the newspapers, from reports of uh, donors whose identities had been revealed pursuant to these um, requirements who were being intimidated and harassed. And that's kind of, that goes to the consequences point. He wasn't saying um, the reason anonymous speech should be protected is, be is because these people are being harassed, but he was pointing it out as this is an example of why the First Amendment cares about anonymous speech. Um, so last term in Americans for Prosperity, the uh, court embraced, the majority of the court embraced Justice Thomas's uh, point of view on anonymous speech, anonymous assembly in that case, um, and said that the First Amendment does protect uh, the right to, um, to speak and assemble anonymously. That was a case where um, California had a requirement that charities must disclose the identity of their major donors to the state attorney general. Um, and the court held that that violated the right to free association. Um, Justice Sotomayor uh, pointed out in her dissent um, explicitly, she said, this was an opinion that was previously only held by one person, uh, <laughs> Justice Thomas. And now the majority of my colleagues agree with it. Um, so it probably took a measure of restraint for the justice not to write separately and just kind of take a bow or uh, whatever. Spiking the football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would that would be too far. But um, it was interesting. I thought that she specifically noted this change in uh, the views of the majority of the court in response to the justices' decades-long um, espousal this position. Um, a related example is in campaign finance um, more generally. Uh, Buckley versus Vallejo has been, you know, on the justices, uh, uh, you know, arch enemies list for a long time. He has called since 1996, I think he's called for the court to overrule um, Buckley because he doesn't see any constitution, any difference for constitutional purposes between contributions and expenditures. Um, of course, the, the court has not overruled Buckley, but there have been a number of a string of cases where the court has been um, undermining a number of the rationales for that decision. Uh, within that realm, he's called specifically for the court to overrule Austin, uh, which was a 1990 case where the court had um, had had allowed for the idea that corporations and unions can spend more money in expenditures, that that is a, a type of corruption that can be regulated um, pursuant to the First Amendment. And Justice Thomas has said, um, 
that is incorrect. That cannot be the case. That is not uh, to the extent that corruption, and he's never suggested that quid pro quo corruption is not an appropriate um, an appropriate reason for the government to regulate um, speech in these um, campaign finance cases. But he's um, consistently called for the court to overrule Austin specifically um, because just the fact that a corporation or a union had more money and was able to um, expend um, significant resources and in, in private expenditures was not the sort of corruption that um, the First Amendment could regulate. And then, as you know, I assume you all know, in Citizens United, the court did exactly that. They overruled Austin um, and cited Justice Thomas's reasoning and the reasoning of other justices who had kind of come along on the way. Um, I think another important case in this line of reasoning is McCutcheon from 2014, where uh, the court decided to um, consider a fresh aggregate limits on um, campaign contributions. So there's there's base limits, what you can give to an individual um, candidate, and there's aggregate limits, right, what you can give overall. Um, and in Buckley, the court had upheld both of those. And in McCutcheon, the court said, you know, Buckley, a lot has changed since Buckley in the legislative realm. And Buckley only gave a few, you know, sentences to considering aggregate limits, so we're going to consider it afresh. And uh, I think you see in that opinion uh, the court acknowledging the um, the persuasiveness of Justice Thomas's reasoning about some of the rationales underlying Buckley. Um, he points out in his dissent that there's basically, you know, there's kind of one rationale for Buckley left, um, and he thinks the court has even given that one up. Um, but I think that's another example where uh, the just, Justice Thomas's persistent drumbeat over decades writing by himself about an issue that he, he thinks is trampling core um, political speech um, that's, you know, the center of the First Amendment of what should be protected and what the founders thought should be protected. Um, and his consistent drumbeat about that has been, um, you know, persuading colleagues along the way. Um, I'll point out, you know, Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia obviously, um, you know, don't get a vote on the current court anymore. But um, he did persuade the two of them or hit the power of his ideas, persuaded them um, that Buckley should be overruled. So that's a uh, we've been talking today a, a little bit about differences between Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. And Justice Scalia had previously defended Buckley and said, I, I does not need to be overruled because nothing's wrong with it. Um, and then you know, Justice Thomas explains why, um, as a matter of first principles, reasoning from the, the text and the history of the Constitution, why that's not the case. And eventually um, all three of them uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia were signing on to Justice Thomas's opinions about how Buckley should be overruled. So, um, again, they they're not on the current court, but they're you know the power of his ideas and his consistency over time has really been um, in these two areas, um, you know, persuading his colleagues. If we if we move to religion, I think there's maybe one topic that might have some. So that's exactly there. that's exactly where I was going to head. So you you alluded to the fact that he hasn't had as many wins in religion. I disagree. Oh, well, well, I say an established an establishment clause. Well, I disagree. Oh, okay. Nicole. So, okay. So what I thought what I thought I'd do is actually ask the disagreeer, uh, Nicole, to to kind of orient us a little bit to for the people that don't know about his his views on partial incorporation of, of the religion clauses. Um, which are uh, unique, uh, or I think fairly said unique, and then maybe hit, maybe hit the highlight reel on on the wins, which are more than one, according to according to Professor Garnett. 
Well, so first of all, obviously, Justice Thomas has very, very um, interesting and uh, so far he's the only one who has really embraced a particular view of incorporation as which we might want to talk about, which is he, he doesn't believe in selective incorporation through the due process clause. He's made clear that it's the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th amendment. And that, that he's not made clear what the universe of rights apply to the States, all of this. Um, he is in McDonald. He, he really, it's sort of a historical tour de force about why slaughterhouse was wrong and why we should uh, reinvigorate it as the method of, enforcing rights against the states. I will say, he has said, and he hasn't gotten any votes, I don't think he's gotten any votes for his view that the Establishment Clause should not have been incorporated against the states, which he first articulates in Zellman, which is a 2002 case upholding the Cleveland School Voucher Program. Um, but as far as the wins go, I'm just going to, I'm a school choice person, so I actually just want to think about this, and Michael is actually a law and religion scholar, he knows more than me, but I want to just sort of march through a, a, a victory reel um, in the school choice thing, where Justice Thomas's views, first articulated by Justice Thomas, I think have are are the law and will be, there'll be like a an exclamation point on them this year. Uh, the the year I clerked, that he wrote a dissental, although that's not what we call it, in a case that involved a Colorado scholarship that excluded um, would not give scholarships to children uh, to to uh, college students who attended pervasively religious colleges, pervasively sectarian colleges. And this, it involved Colorado Christian University. So he says, first of all, this is discrimination. It violates the free exercise and the religion clauses together kind of that to exclude religious institutions from generally available public um, benefit programs. Then Judge McConnell later has an opinion about this, this scholarship invalidating, I think, on these grounds. So then, so, you know, then in Zellman, uh, he says, he first articulates this view that establishment clause should not be incorporated, but he also starts articulating this view that the establishment clause should not be used as a weapon to discriminate against religious institutions. This is one of his consequences piece. Like this is, this is, this, my, he says to his dissenting colleagues in Zellman, you want to use the establishment clause as a weapon to keep kids, poor kids, out of good schools. That should never happen. And he starts, then there's later, um, obviously, his view that it shouldn't be weaponized. And in fact, that the neutrality um, demanded of the religion clauses read together prohibits uh, the exclusion of religious schools, first articulated, I think first articulated in this 1999 dissental, um, becomes effectively the law in Trinity Lutheran, and then in, in um, Espinosa versus Montana, where he repeats again the fact that this should not be we, we should not be weaponizing the establishment clause. It, the establishment clause requires neutrality, and it shouldn't be applied to the states at all. And now the court has a, yet another opportunity to get rid of this nonsense, like Chief Justice view that there might be a distinction between being religious and doing religious things, which I don't understand the status use distinction. But a case the court granted this term asks, can the state of Maine exclude religious schools from a uh, scholarship, a voucher of law? And um, I think, the, I don't think they took it to affirm the First Circuit. But um, so I think that is a, an, an area where his view that of sort of um, the Establishment Clause is has come to be the law. But Michael might have other thoughts. 
All I would say is it goes even before that to at least to his uh, plurality opinion for four justices in Mitchell versus Helms. Uh, this is a case which I happen to argue, and it had to do with a federal program that provided library books, computers, and some other uh, uh, assistance of that sort to all schools on the ba- on a per capita basis, so completely neutral uh, program. And the uh, Fifth Circuit held that this was unconstitutional, by the way, not happily. They, they said that the, that the that the, case, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence is a vast wasteland uh, and complained all about how terrible it was, but said they were bound by uh, uh, by this. And the court split three ways with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, four justices sticking to the old jurisprudence. So you can't do that. They might be able to use these computers and library books for religious stuff. Um, and... Uh, Justice O'Connor saying, well, that's not good enough for a facial challenge. Maybe they could, but there's no evidence in this case that they ever did, and so we'll uphold the program. By the way, the practical implication of that is expensive litigation, fact-oriented litigation in every case, right, because you end up having, you know, discovery and, uh, you know, did they use the computer? Did any of the kids, like, access the Bible or something on their computer? It's like, imagine what that litigation looks like. And and uh, uh, Justice Thomas wrote the plurality saying this is okay because this is a completely neutral program. Two things about it. It was not a consequentialist opinion. It was an originalist opinion that there is, that this idea that, uh, aid to a to the uh, sort of educational social welfare programs of religious institutions is in any way unconstitutional under the you know, th- you know things like Madison's memorial and remonstrance is just a misunderstanding, right? And also, and I think this is so interesting. This is the first time the Supreme Court noted that the pro that the discrimination against uh, religious schools is a product of the mid to late 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry. And he takes that on, pointing out that this idea of sect- pervasively sectarian, the word sectarian, was code for Catholic. Protestants, by the way, are not sectarians. Did you know that? They're not sectarians because, you know, that's what sort of, that's sort of the ordinary set of beliefs. Catholics are sectarian because they believe sectarian stuff like, you know, transubstantiation and, you know, the, the infallibility of the Pope and, and I don't know, the, the immaculate conception of Mary. And these are sectarian notions that, you know, that uh, unlike Protestants. Right, that that was 19th century thinking, and Clarence Thomas was the first justice to point it out, and this was the foundation then of the uh, most recent Espinoza versus Montana uh, decisions. I think this really uh, should be put in his win uh, uh, column. Can I follow up one one thing that Michael points out that I think I, I I think another big win for the justice, although it has yet to be articulated. So in Mitchell versus Helms, he says, so in the voucher cases, the voucher cases say, well, the reason it's okay to give money to the kids to go to Catholic school or Jewish school or whatever is it's the government is the is it making the decision? It's the parent. Perfectly logical. But then, of course, the question is, what about when the government is? And he says in Mitchell versus Helms for 
he says, look, we shouldn't require this circuit breaker. All the establishment clause requires is neutrality toward religion. And if you read through um, the Trinity Lutheran case in Espinoza, I, I think a majority of the court now embraces that. I mean, in Espinoza, the chief talks about all kinds of programs where it's clear the money was going straight to religious schools, like the mission schools and, Native, and Indian reservations. And um, that that is groundbreaking. It's It's huge because you think about all the kinds of the CARES Act, for example. The CARES Act, tons of direct funding of religious schools, direct funding of churches to keep their employees employed. Nobody raises an establishment clause challenge saying, wait a second, there's no circuit breaker. Everybody, they're just, they're giving out huge amounts of money. I was, I maybe shouldn't say this because somebody might sue, but I was talking to somebody in um, in New York who said that Jewish day schools are now getting money to pay for science teachers from the state of New York. That actually is a violation of the Lyman test because as far as I know, that was the, that was <laughs> the exact program at issue in Lemon. And so I think like the, the two, I really do think he's won on these things. So by design, we left the most limited amount of time for our panel to discuss the role, if any, of <laughs> natural law in, in Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. I'm going to ask Judge Rushing to, to sort of to answer that question. But before I, before I do, I have to make the observation that when I read that this was going to be a topic, all I could think of was that I know that you know, <laughs> that I know that you know, that we know, that Professor McConnell knows, that Judge Rushing knows, that there's this thing called natural law. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Judge Rushing, what role, if any, does natural law play in, in the justice's jurisprudence? Well, I think Adam's alluding to there was a... Uh, I don't know if it was a real or imagined fear at the time of the justice's uh, confirmation that he might be consulting some abstract body of natural law to actually decide his cases, right? That in addition to the Constitution and the, you know, U.S. Uh, code and precedent that he would also, you know, turn aside and say, and now what does natural law say? And that might be the rule of decision. Um, that's obviously not been the case, but he does turn to natural law. Um, for understanding and interpreting positive law. Um, I think he he wrote about this before he joined the bench, and it has turned out to be the case that in understanding the original public meaning of our founding documents, uh, the justice consults uh, what was informing these principles um, at the time, and natural law thinking was informing the principles and the philosophies of the Declaration, um, which he thinks then should be used in interpreting the Constitution, uh, because uh, the Constitution really frames these principles and these um, uh, these ideals that are set out in the Declaration, which are very, um, very much natural law principles. So where does this actually come up in his jurisprudence? I think um, there are two that jump out um, to me, and I'm, others probably have many more examples, but um, his concept of equality um, as an individual, um, an individual concept of equality rather than a group concept of equality, I think traces to um, his understanding of uh the natural law principle of equality at the time of the Declaration, which is then obviously um, 
brought into his interpretation of the Constitution. Um, he, this comes up often in his uh, discussion of the desegregation cases. I think Jenkins is a great example um, in racial preferences like Adirond and affirmative action cases, um, voting rights. Um, he again, again, comes back to this concept of equality as an individual assessment um, rather than a group assessment. And he um, takes that back to the declaration and to um, natural law philosophies. Another place that this comes up is in uh, liberty, uh, right? A very uh, capacious term, but he uh, he consults what what were the founders meaning when they were talking about liberty in the Constitution and the Declaration? And he interprets that as negative liberty, right? Freedom from government action, freedom from restraint, even uh, perhaps is is its limited meaning, rather than freedom to benefits, freedom to certain rights. Um, this is he talks about this at length in Obergefell. Um, where he, you know, he's citing Locke and the other sort of natural law um, sources for the idea that this was the concept of liberty um, that he thinks the framers were uh, putting into the Constitution. Um, as Nicole um, alluded to, the big question in this area is um, the privileges or immunities clause. And, um, you know, in McDonald, he's acknowledged that um, he thinks that's where... Uh, rights to the extent that they are incorporated, that's where they come, uh, but that there might be, you know, he's he's said, you know, principles of equality, government by consent, inalienable rights proclaimed in the Declaration, these are all uh, in our Constitution. And so the big question in privileges or immunities is, to what extent would he um, draw upon natural law um, to, uh, to determine what the content of the privileges or immunities are, aside from um, any rights that are explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. Any any other comments from the panel on the role of natural law and justices' jurisprudence? So I um, and, and prepper, after our sort of organizing meeting on this, when I knew this was coming up, I asked my research assistant to go through all of Justice Thomas's opinions to for all references to either natural law, natural rights, or the Declaration of Independence. What fun! And uh, ju Judge Rushing is entirely correct. It wasn't just our impression of two. If you read them all, which I did last night, uh, um, uh, he does not in any of these uh, use natural law as a direct basis. He doesn't say natural law says this, therefore, you know, that's a source, that's a source of authority. Every, in every example, he takes... Uh, aspects of our constitutional uh, of our constitution, and he explains how they what they would have meant in light of the natural law tradition against which they were written. Uh, Judge Rushing gave a couple of examples to the, uh, of that. By the way, uh, I think for equality, it's not just you know individuals versus groups, uh, but uh, I think for our for you know t for 2021. I, I wish people would think more seriously about what Thomas is saying here because he insists that uh, the idea is of an equality of rights. Every human being is entitled to the same set of rights. And this is what today is being rejected quite explicitly under the rubric of equity rather than equality. So when you hear the equity versus equality 
thing being argued. This is precisely what uh, Justice Thomas has been uh, writing about. But he's also applied it to he he, he mines uh, the 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 uh, natural law tri- treatise writers for the definition of executive power. There there are quite a few uh, uh, examples of this and. Um, and and so I think that the the idea that he just is going to you know treat natural law as sort of a an, an extra source of extra constitutional source of legal principles I I think is just not so. So with that, and on behalf I speak on behalf of the panel. The panel will yield to as many questions as can be contained in a thirteen minute period that are actually about the subject of the panel. <laughs> And since the panel's on everything. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, speaking today. Uh, kind of on the, the last issue that was discussed, uh, if I remember correctly, in McDonald versus City of Chicago, um, I think the biggest question for me at the end what is, is if the uh, you know incorporation should occur through privileges and immunities clause. Uh, will that will those rights apply to non-citizens? And I think Justice Thomas, uh, you know, kind of relegates that question to a footnote. Um, but it seems to be the the larger question there, in light of the natural law and the idea that these rights, um, these privileges and immunities, should apply to everyone equally, uh, regardless of citizenship. How does that pair with his understanding that incorporation should only uh, be applied to citizens of the United States? I'm going to exempt Judge Rushing from that question and and pitch it to Albert. <laughs> you argue cases in front of courts and get asked weird questions all the time. Go ahead. I haven't. I, I I've I, given some thought. To this. All right. <laughs> I will yield. I mean, this to, is to as, the, as the questioner indicates. This is very big, very hard thing because. Uh, it, it, the Fourteenth Amendment refers to the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Right. That's. Uh, it is not a natural law principle. Right. The 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 content of the privileges and immunities uh, arises out of, among other things, I don't think exclusively natural rights theory, but it arises mostly out of the common law. Um, most of the founders believe that common law and natural rights theory were you know, like very closely uh, uh, tied. And so the content of the rights has a natural rights basis, but uh, privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States pertains to privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, that may not answer the whole question because there's also an equal protection clause. And if it is true, as the Supreme Court has held on numerous occasions, that the Equal Protection Clause prohibits uh, 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 discrimination against uh, non-citizens with respect to matters not related specifically to participation in the political community, then it may very well be that once privileges and immunities are protected for citizens, they also, by virtue of equal protection, uh, are uh, protected, uh, that uh, non-citizens are, are protected. Uh, to my knowledge, Justice Thomas hasn't addressed that. So I have given no thought to your question, but I thought you were going to ask a different question, so I'm going to answer it. <laughs> so I I think the biggest question after McDonald is whether, so I don't think he, he said, I'm not sure he says that this is incorporation, something else, and whether or not rights not contained in the Bill of Rights are privileges or 
immunities of citizenship, and if so, what, what unenumerated rights there are. In his opinion, in Sayans versus Roe, he talks about the the famous sort of Corfield versus Corrigan, like that, like list, which includes stuff not in the Bill of Rights. So I think that's the that's the really interesting and big big question: is to what extent are unenumerated rights imposed against the states, and if they are, what they are? And to Allison's point, just just sorry, Judge Rushing's point, I think the natural law thinking of the time would inform those. Then we'll come over here, right here first, and then we'll come over here. Hi, uh, sorry. Uh, thank you for the panel, obviously. Um, I had a question. It sounds like what's being discussed is a natural law canon of construction. And I guess my broad question is, should there be one, and what should it look like? Which I know is a huge question, but. <laughs> I don't view it as a canon of construction. I just view it as a as part of the historical examination that when uh, when there's a particular term that comes out of a particular tradition, that looking to that tradition is the way to understand it. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's any fancier uh, uh, than that. And we know that many of the uh, terms of the Constitution did come out of a natural rights uh, uh, tradition. In the back over here, I'm uh, Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. And uh, I'm going to follow up on that first question and put a question to Mike McConnell, which will afford him an opportunity to give the wrong answer. <laughs> uh, if the privilege we've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> if the um, privileges or immunities clause uh, provides uh, privileges or immunities for citizens of the United States. It seems to me that therefore it refers back to the rights retained by the people, which will get us back into the natural rights tradition of the Declaration of Independence and afford an opportunity for judges to expatiate on the idea of rights retained by the people and therefore to invoke the common law tradition by way of informing the Ninth Amendment. Would you care to comment, Michael? So the, the 14th Amendment needs to be understood as a kind of nationalizing of rights amendment. It was it was about it came about because of secession. Federalism has a lot to do with it, but not in the usual sense. I'm not saying it's federal, it's not like states' rights, it's the opposite, right? It is an idea that we need to nationalize rights. And so what the 14th Amendment says is that all you know, citizens of the United States have all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. And then you, that refers back not to the Ninth Amendment. The language is entirely different. Uh, it refers back to, uh, uh, to the so-called comedy clause of, uh, uh, of the Fourth Amendment, which, which requires each state to treat citizens of other states um, equally with respect to privileges and immunities. So what did that mean? This is where Corfield versus Coriel comes in, that there is a, a that there was a uniform body, not quite uniform, but a, a general body of common law 
Uh, and if you go through Co uh, Corfield versus Coriel, it's about the right to own property, to make contracts, to, to uh, you know, to enter and leave, to uh, be subject to the same criminal laws. Uh, I may be leaving out a, 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 a few uh, uh, of Cor Corfield Cor versus Coriel's uh, things. Those, those are basically, that's the first year law school curriculum. Right. It's it's common law. And the idea is that when somebody from Massachusetts goes to Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has to accord that person uh, all, the same all of those same basic privileges and immunities. They can't treat them as aliens. That was the basic idea. And then the 14th Amendment comes on and says, and what's more, states have to treat all of their citizens. Think now of the freedmen, right, who are being denied those rights under the, the black codes, they have to treat all of their own citizens the, uh, uh, with, uh, in, in the same way. So you can't treat your, your uh, black citizens as aliens either. Everybody is entitled to that same set of, uh, uh, of uh, f fundamental privileges and immunities uh, on an equal basis. I don't actually think that allows judges to say, well, here's something I think should be a privilege and immunity. I think it's what are the privileges and immunities that is the long recognized uh, common, mostly common law based uh, rights. I was once giving a talk on this and the more in, in, uh, uh, in the newspaper that morning had a headline that said something like, do people have a right to engage in cloning, cloning themselves? And I, I began my talk with this because I thought that was so hilarious. Here was something that's not even physically and biologically and scientifically possible that people are claiming a, a, a right to do. No, it's, it's the established privileges and immunities, meaning these rights which were widely shared uh, maybe not in their precise details, uh, but widely shared among the states and listed in, uh, that happened to be listed in Corfield, and not just Corfield, there are about, there are about five or six antebellum decisions with a very similar list. So, so I think it is important, that, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Roger, but I, I, I don't think that Justice Thomas would embrace uh, exactly your conception of what these, his job is. I think he's not a common good originalist whatever that means. That is to say, he's not looking for the content of the Constitution in the natural law. Um, he's not looking to think up rights that may or may not have existed but are implicit in the idea of liberty. He, I believe, thinks that, to Michael's point, that the, the natural law may inform the meaning of the positive law, but the rights of the privileges or immunities of citizenship, whatever they are, were fixed at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified and that they are knowable in some sense. But that, but not. It's not like a free-ranging. You know, what would good law be? What would the natural law be if we could reinterpret it today? I mean, I do think he thinks as as in, informing the positive law, the fixed set of rights, whatever they are. And I, I don't know what his list would be, but I think that's what he would, how he would articulate it. One more question from over here, but before that, I want to just insulate Nicole from any criticism. I am also vaccinated and also not a common good originalist. <laughs> I care more about one than the other. <laughs> Hold it. Does this work? Yes. Just a couple of quickies on, on this last matter. Uh, Jackson used to cite Ch Chaz just 
use on the point, the case of uh, the right to move across state lines. And he said, no, that's, that is a line with it's a freedom to apply to all persons, even to resident aliens. And um, of course, in Bush, Bush Washington was appealing at Corfield to uh, those rights that would flow out of the very logic of a free government, which I took to be you know, the right to examine the witnesses and see the evidence against oneself, which I take to be simply the rights that would flow from any regime founded on the principles of natural law, government by the consent of the government, the rule of law. Just a quickie, though, on, on, on Clarence Thomas on matter of consequences. Uh, he, he would say that um, uh, this, these policies of racial preferences could affect a kind of an odium uh, to people who may be suspected of being the uh, affirmative action appointee to this hospital, things like this. But at the same time, it's quite clear that his rejection of racial preferences, rejection in principle, that, that, that objection would have remained even if everybody were happy. No, no injuries could emanate from this matter. But on that case, what was it, uh, Reed, where he spoke about the effects felt by those people whose businesses were destroyed because their, their contribution to Proposition 8 in California was revealed. By bringing out that, those chain of happenings, what he's really trying to explain is what serious, what serious interest is at stake in NAACP versus Alabama? What serious interest may be engaged in the legitimate reason for people to keep, keep in confidentiality certain of their political commitments? And the brief, question brief comments if, if people have, if you have anything to say in response to Hadley. Well, I would I would just say I, I really agree with that and I don't want I don't think we should label this as consequentialism. Uh, one of the jobs of a justice is to write opinions to help educate the American people and remind us all of the of the reasons behind uh, the, the our constitutional principles and uh, you know we don't obey I think we're ultimately not loyal to the Constitution just because it was written. 230 some odd years ago, but because it fundamentally describes uh, the set of uh, rights and duties and organization of a free people. And I think I'm embracing what Hadley has just said, because I think Justice Thomas, and he's not the first, and he won't be the last justice, that when writing about positive law principles, uh, brings out examples of why those principles actually are very, uh, are, are you know important to a free people. I think perhaps He's the best on the current court at doing that. So, Adam, you did a superb job moderating. Please join me in thanking our panelists.